Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, an appetizing collection of this week's coverage from across our outputs. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu, Britain's High Court and the Brexit vote. The rise of the niche smartphone and what has Christianity ever done for us? But first, America's best hope was our cover line this week. With America's unedifying presidential race finally coming to its denouement, we laid out the case for our endorsement. Hypothetically, our vote goes for Hillary Clinton. And it's not difficult to see why. The choice is not hard. The campaign has provided daily evidence that Mr Trump would be a terrible president. For those of you blissfully unaware or in need of a little convincing... His experience, temperament and character make him horribly unsuited to being the head of state of the nation that the rest of the democratic world looks to for leadership. The commander-in-chief of the world's most powerful armed forces and the person who controls America's nuclear deterrent. While that alone would stop us casting our ballot for Mr Trump, he has distasteful policies to boot. We disagree with him on the environment, immigration, America's role in the world and other things besides. His ideas on revenue and spending are an affront to statistics. We would sooner have endorsed Richard Nixon, even had we known how he would later come to grief. Hence, The Economist's vote goes to Hillary Clinton, though of course she's not without fault. Her tax plan is fiddly. Her opposition to the trade deal with Asia that she once championed is disheartening. And her incremental aims have led to a lacklustre campaign. She believes in the power of small changes compounded over time to bring about larger ones. An inability to sound as if she was offering an overnight transformation is one of the things that makes her a bad campaigner. But in some ways, a methodical approach is exactly what's needed. Herding bills through Congress to the point of signing requires a tolerance for patient negotiating and a command of sleep-inducing detail. Though it has been hard to hear above the demand to lock her up, Mrs Clinton has campaigned for an open, optimistic country. So will she be able to put her ideas into practice? You can read the rest of our endorsement leader, as well as all of our coverage on the eve of the election, on our website at economist.com. More drama unfolded in the West this week in the form of a High Court ruling over in Britain. It means that the country's exit from the EU might be subject to more pressure from Parliament than previously thought. An article in our Britain section followed the twist in the tale. The pound soared on the morning of November 3rd after the High Court in London ruled that only Parliament has the authority to trigger Article 50 of the European Union Treaty, 
the legal route for Britain to leave the EU. You can read about the finer print of the ruling on our website, but looming over the court case are some hefty political arguments. Although Brexiteers campaigned on the promise to take back powers from Brussels and Luxembourg to Westminster, they have resisted the closer involvement of Parliament in the process because a large majority of MPs in the House of Commons and of peers in the House of Lords backed the Remain side in the referendum. So could Brexit now not mean Brexit? Since the referendum produced a clear majority to leave on a very high turnout, it seems unlikely that Parliament will actually block Brexit. Britain's government is appealing to the Supreme Court against the decision, and it may well endorse the High Court's judgment, our article explained. But even if it does not, the political argument for giving Parliament greater say, both in the triggering of Article 50 and in the lengthy negotiating process that will follow, now seems unanswerable. As Britain's lawyers and politicians unpick the complexities of the country's departure from the EU, in our international section this week, we entered the expanding labyrinth that is internet regulation. Online barriers are proliferating, and rather than allowing for human progress, they may well hinder it, as the article explained. As long as cyberspace was a sideshow, governments did not much care. But as it has penetrated every facet of life, they feel compelled to control it. By making tangible rules for an intangible world... Courts and governments have embarked on what some call a legal arms race to impose a maze of national or regional rules often conflicting in the digital realm. This mesh of regulation is attempting to oversee a colossal network. The internet, and even more so cloud computing, i.e. the storage of vast amounts of data and the supply of myriad services online, has become the world's uber infrastructure. But attempts to control flows of data risk undermining the ethos at the web's core. One of the founding principles of the internet, that any device on the network should be able to communicate with any other, is being eroded by new technologies, such as firewalls walls and a separate dark web, which is only accessible using a special browser. If obstacles continue to rise, so too will negative consequences for all of us. Left unchecked, the trend towards a splinter net will cause economic damage, hamper digital innovation, restrict free speech and, according to a recent report for the World Economic Forum, ruin the Internet's enormous capacity to facilitate human progress. We turn now to a company trying to foster human development through a charitable idea. Buy a pair of shoes from Tom's and they'll donate a pair to children in developing countries. But does it actually do any good? On Money Talks, our economics correspondent, Sumeya Keynes, walked us through recent research into the idea. So they look at a huge range of things. They look at health, they look at absenteeism. Are these kids getting fewer foot diseases? Are they feeling better about themselves? And they essentially don't come up with anything. So perhaps not the life-changing effects customers who buy shoes might believe, but does it have any impact on the children's attitudes? So that is the one thing that the researchers did find that caused some concern. Among the children that didn't get any shoes, about 66% said that others should provide for the needs of my family. And among the kids that did, that rose to about 79%. So that's worrying, right? If if these kids are being given these shoes and, and that's changing their attitudes towards whether they should be getting external help. So obviously with any charitable intervention, you're going to run the risk of this aid dependency I guess the response to that is, well, you might be more willing to tolerate that if you're getting the transformative impact. 
Our science and technology podcast Babbage looked into some potentially life-changing measurements for enjoying wine. For those of you who never seem to pick the right tipple or just can't be bothered to learn about which grapes take your fancy, a new invention might help. Journalist Paul Marks, who wrote about the concept for the paper this week, explained how technology is helping the layman get sozzled on just the right stuff. Basically, instead of having what the connoisseur would have, slightly posh descriptions of wine as raspberry notes and elderflower aftertastes with a prune flourish, they worked out a way of describing wine in very simple terms, how you might just say, oh, I fancy something light, a bit full-bodied maybe, or something dry. And basically, on a touchscreen, you just choose on a slider, various scales of different flavours, and the machine takes four base wines and melds you a wine to your taste, hopefully. Personal taste and consumerism go hand in hand. Buying something is a way to express our individuality, but when it comes to smartphones, the choice has become a little stagnant. Might that change? As an article in our business section explained, though most smartphones now look one and the same, niche designs are on the up. On January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs stood before an audience of some 45,000 people in San Francisco and announced a revolutionary and magical product. A slight slab of expansive black touchscreen with just a single button. The uncluttered elegance of the iPhone looked like a death knell for its competitors. A Technicolor pageant of rival designs, the clamshell, the slide, the banana, the candy bar and the blackberry resolved into a uniform black mirror. And nearly every smartphone on the planet still looks like the device which Jobs revealed that day. In a sea of similarity, manufacturers have seen an opportunity, like this small British firm, Bullet. In May, Bullet tied up with Jaguar Land Rover, a British car maker, to make phones which are supposed to reflect the endurance of its go-anywhere four-wheel drive vehicles. While over in Russia, pragmatism takes a different form. A Russian mobile network makes the Yotta phone, which has two screens, one similar to a regular smartphone and a second black-and-white low-power display, like those used by e-book readers. This setup extends the phone's battery life. And, of course, there's always the commemorative option. Niches are not just found, but also made. AG Mobile, a South African firm, this year launched a range of inexpensive Nelson Mandela-branded phones and tablets. Smartphones and technology now inspire a quasi-religious fervour, but our last taste of this week's coverage comes from more traditional theology. Christianity's influence on the modern world may be too easily forgotten by secular thinkers, but as argued in a new book, the West gained a lot from the religion. And there's still more to learn. In the early years of the Enlightenment, a few brave philosophers challenged the Christian order. An apparently hopeless task, we explained, but their efforts eventually paid off. And tomes have since been written by authors from Diderot to Richard Dawkins about the triumph of secular man. What, after all, has Christianity ever done for us? Well, rather a lot, actually, argues Nick Spencer, author of a new book entitled The Evolution of the West. Like a prophet crying in the postmodern wilderness, Mr Spencer provokes reflection that goes far beyond the shallow ding-dongs of the modern culture wars. He wants to make sure Westerners know where they come from as a way to illuminate where they are going. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So where does Mr Spencer point it? The author believes that the fact that Christianity became the religion of the European establishment has blinded people to what a revolutionary doctrine it was and is. 
and he clearly believes it can still play a role. Out of the Christianization of Europe, he suggests, came the origins of the modern world. A belief in equality of status as the proper basis for a legal system, and the assertion of natural rights leading to individual liberty, as well as the notion that a society built on the assumption of moral equality should have a representative form of government. Yes, but as Monty Python once put it, what have the Christians ever done for us? Find out more in this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or by tweeting us at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. 